1: This podcast is brought to you by Dr. Kirk Elliott, PhD, in an uncertain economy. If you're looking for wealth management solutions and financial advice, go to kirkelliottphd.com and make an appointment today. Coming up, Media Matters does a hit job on Elon Musk. I'll tell you the details. I'll consider the significance of the new January 6th footage released by House Speaker Mike Johnson. Trump finally says, and I welcome this, I'm going to do to you what you've been doing to me and to us. This is great, and TV host and author Brian Kilmeade joins me. We're going to talk about his new book, Teddy and Booker T. If you're watching on Rumble or listening on Apple, Google, or Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh Show.
0: America needs this voice. The times are crazy, in a time of confusion, division, and lies. We need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This
1: is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. Elon Musk has a free speech platform, and therein lies the problem. Now, when Elon Musk bought X, formerly known as Twitter... There were a lot of predictions from the left. This platform is going to go bust. There's going to be a massive um explosion of hate on the platform. It's going to be hate central USA. And uh none of these predictions have really come true. Uh, uh X has not gone bust. In fact, X has been gaining traction through some very savvy uh, business moves and they've got a new CEO. And uh, hate speech? I mean, do you see it? I don't. So not to say that in any large platform, there's not going to be crazy people here and they're posting a nonsense. But the point is, this is not defining the platform at all. It is the same as you would find in any free speech environment where sometimes people say dumb things. But Media Matters decided to do a hit on X, a coordinated hit and a hit that turns out was successful. Successful? Why? Because all these major corporations, including Apple, uh, Lionsgate, some of the other studios, decided in a kind of simultaneous manner to pull their ads from from X to sort of. Uh, send a message or maybe even to try to bring down X. Remember the coordinated hit on Parler that came a few years ago that sort of destroyed that whole platform. Now, X is a whole different matter. And also in dealing with Elon Musk, you're dealing well with the richest guy on the planet, somebody who has resources. In fact, in some cases, more resources than the people going after him. So uh this is a big bid by the left, but a bid for what? What is Media Matters trying to achieve? What they're trying to achieve is total control over the information network. They think of it. They've got much of the media. They've got all the three major networks. They've got YouTube. They've got Google. They've got Facebook. They're running censorship operations and all the other digital platforms. Now, true, there's Getter, there's Rumble, but nothing of the magnitude of X. And so X is a, well, let's just say X is a major target, uh, and they wanted to, to take down this platform. They wanted to teach Elon Musk uh, a lesson. Now, it seems, at least this is from some internal research at Twitter, at X, that Media Matters orchestrated a hoax. And by that, I mean, well, let me let me go through. This is uh, Joe Benarok, who is uh, uh, one of the technical experts at Twitter, a guy I actually know. We've, I've talked to him on the phone. Um, Media Matters created three accounts, and followed 30 accounts similar to the ones in the article. They then constantly refreshed the timeline of posts. And as so what what they're getting at here is, and I won't go into the technical details, but basically what they're saying is there's all this hate speech on X, and they showed all these corporations screenshots of the hate speech. But it turns out they weren't randomly going through X and finding this. In fact, no users or virtually no users saw this content. What Media Matters did is they basically engineered it through hitting refresh, refresh, refresh. They got the content, and by getting the content, they trapped it in a screenshot, and they're like, aha, take a look. So what they're really doing, it's kind of like saying, America's a racist society. Now, this is actually hard-pressed to find everybody. But... Be- Everywhere you go on campuses, people bend over backwards to be, you know, obliging and accommodating to black so it's really hard to find. But nevertheless, you go, OK, I'll just go to a certain place where I'm likely to hear something. I'll then magnify it. I'll, I'll make sure that I capture it again and again and again. I'll sort of take these little recycled horror stories, tape them all together. Aha! Uh-huh. America's a racist society. Here's a mishmash of, of video that proves it. Nonsense. This is actually cultivated by the creator to create a distorted um, impression. Now, turns out, Elon Musk is filing today, this morning, what he calls a thermonuclear lawsuit. And the good thing about this lawsuit is not just against um, Media Matters. It's against all the donors. The non-profits, the dark money, all the liberal billionaires who feed money into media matters, usually through an intermediary, so their names are camouflaged. Elon Musk, I think, intends to sue them all. Excellent move. Why? Because, first of all, in discovery, you're going to get all kinds of information about the communications between all these guys, how this whole nefarious operation works, how this kind of hit job is carried out. We actually need to know in the same way that the expose of what of the internal machinations of Twitter was a real window into the working of the censorship industry before we knew that it was going on. But we actually didn't know how it is going on. So this lawsuit, I think, is extremely promising. And by the way, all kinds of people coming to the defense of X, uh, claiming that they're now going to boost up their advertising to help this free speech platform um, and uh But I think the most important effect here is not even that. It's it's the radicalization of Elon Musk himself. Elon Musk is actually politically a moderate, maybe slightly right of center. I'm not even sure. Elon Musk says, and I think this is right, that the center has moved left, thus making him somewhat to the right. But I think what he's beginning to see is he's dealing not just with people who disagree with him. But vicious people who want to destroy him And I think he's coming to the view that the only solution Is to destroy them before they destroy him So as with Trump And I'll talk about Trump in in a few minutes uh, The battle is on Fortunately, we are now fighting with a titan on our side Let the games begin During times of economic uncertainty and political upheaval, it's crucial to have a reliable source of financial guidance and insight. That's where Dr. Kirk Elliott, PhD, and his esteemed wealth management advisory firm come into play. Dr. Kirk Elliott has distinguished himself. He's got two PhDs in economics and theology. He's built a reputation in expert financial solutions tailored to your unique needs. His firm specializes in wealth management, offering a comprehensive array of services to protect and grow your assets, In an ever-changing world, in an environment with so much economic volatility, shifting political landscapes, you need a trusted partner during these challenges. Dr. Elliott's firm employs cutting-edge strategies and understanding of markets to guide you toward financial success. Go to KirkElliottPhD.com. That's KirkElliottPhD. That's two L's, two T's. KirkElliottPhD.com slash Dinesh. Book an appointment, they'll walk you through their investment process. That's PhD.com or you can call or text, here's the number, seven two zero six zero five thirty nine hundred. Again, seven two zero six zero five thirty nine hundred. Remember the headlines after January 6th? I've actually got a screenshot of uh, a bunch of them, um, and I'm just going to read a few. Washington Post, Trump's Mob Storms Capital. Uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune: Trump incited mob storms U.S. Capitol. Arizona Republic: Pro-Trump mob invades Capitol, uh, under siege, democracy attack, uh, intolerable attack on democracy, assault on democracy. So it's almost like everybody got the same memo, uh, and that can. And I'm not suggesting a conspiracy that somebody is actually sending out a memo. I'm suggesting like-minded people who all jumped on a narrative right after January 6th. This was an insurrection. This was an effort to take over the U.S. government. They were trying to overthrow the U.S. government, Tadesh. Now, (laughs) let's think about this for a minute. Let's play it out. You got this, Trumpsters in the Capitol. Let's just say the police decided, okay, we're outnumbered. We are going to evacuate the building. What would happen? Would the Trumpsters, in fact, take over the U.S. government? Oh, we are occupying the Capitol. Therefore, now we are in charge of the USA. The shaman guy is the new president. And all the other guys, the bearded guys, the guys with America flags, are now the new legislature. They're going to sit around, they're going to pass laws, they're going to appoint ambassadors to foreign countries. Nonsense, ridiculous, absurd, BS. Truth of it is, if they had occupied the building, the cops would have left. Pretty soon they would have returned in force. They would have encircled the Capitol, bullhorns, guns, get out of there, everybody evacuate the building. The building would be evacuated insurrection complete, i.e. there wasn't an insurrection at all. This was not an insurrection. This was a protest against a perceived stolen election. In debate whether the election was stolen, I think you know my views on the matter. But my point is, that's what it was. And now, with all the footage coming out, and the footage is really freaky. In fact, the left is really upset about all this because they're like, oh, we're getting all these selective clips. We're getting all this partial pictures of what happened on January. There was actually a lot of violence we know there was violence. You've been recycling the same clips of violence for two years. In fact, if you had a lot more clips, we'd see them. It's always the same stuff. You know, the same guy, the same cop, the same shield. So there was sporadic violence. We know that. What we don't know is what else was going on. See, when you're looking at a picture of a whole thing, let's say, for example, there's a protest and there are a thousand people there and three guys get into a fight. And you make a video of that and you keep showing that, oh, this was extremely violent. Three guys got into a fight. Well, yeah, but was that typical of what was happening in the crowd? Or was that exceptional when most of the guys were actually just protesting peacefully? That's the key issue. The key issue is context. It's being able to see the full picture. Well, we have been prevented for two and a half years from seeing the full picture. Why? Because of the, the media uh, because of the January 6th committee, because they only used information to serve a narrative. It's kind of like when you go into a courtroom, you have a prosecutor. Well, he's going to show you his side. It's expected. But it's not expected of the media. But the media acts like the prosecution. We're going to only show you these videos. They're all partial. And even in court, amazingly, some judges have refused to show the full video. In fact, they act like it's national security. Oh, no, we can't show you the video because it it shows a corridor. And that corridor can't be shown because of security reasons, you know, even though tourists walk through that corridor every day. So this is the rigged narrative of January 6th. And what's coming out is all the rest of the story. All the stuff we haven't seen. All new stuff. And what do we see? Well, I mean, we see people coming in, the cops, like, shaking their hands fist bumping them. Oh, you're escorting them through the Capitol. We've seen some of that. Tucker showed the shaman guy being escorted around. And so when you look at that, you're like, that doesn't really square with an insurrection. Really? If this was an insurrection? Imagine if the Confederates went into the U.S. Capitol during the Civil War. Do you think that the U.S. government would be escorting them around? Fist bump. High five. Let me show you. It's right over here. No, not to mention the fact that, of course, the Confederates would have burned the Capitol. They would have burned the paintings. They would have have burned the columns. They would set the place on fire. They would have shelled the place, whereas not a single person who went into the Capitol went in armed. Maybe the most disturbing footage that we're seeing is the police initiating fire. And it's very clear. You can see the crowd. The crowd is perfectly peaceful. they are people milling around. And then you can see the cops, and they're loading up. And then boom, boom, boom. Now, what crowd isn't going to be agitated if you do that, if you initiate that? And see, all this footage was available to the January 6th committee. And they were probably like, we're not going to be showing that. We're not going to be showing that. We're not going to be showing that. That totally blows our narrative out of the water. So this is the real value of um, the Speaker of the House, Johnson, Mike Johnson, saying, OK, here it is. Here's all the footage. So the beauty of that is anyone can check, anyone can see. If something is out of context, provide the context. If the left says, oh, no, right after this particular incident, the cops were being set up upon. Show us where it happened. Show me. Um you know we have this uh what is this guy Gonell one of the Capitol Hill police officers and he gave testimony oh I was maimed oh I was bleeding oh I was my 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 left leg was immobilized and so on you can read the, the description yourself I'm paraphrasing here but he acts like he was completely debilitated look on the video he's perfectly normal he's walking around with all the other guys his, his left leg is not immobilized he's not maimed he's not bleeding his hand is not immobilized so it looks like this guy I don't know if it's just for reasons. He wanted to make himself a martyr. He wanted to, you know, propel himself to fame. Or if he was just coached. if they just told him, listen, this is our narrative. You're in the cow. This is kind of our official story. You know, you go with it and go ahead and embellish because it's no big deal. No one's ever going to catch you out. See, I don't think that they ever thought that this footage would come out. But the footage now is out. It allows us to look at the story in a new light. By the way, if you haven't seen Police State, there's a big section on January 6th. And it blows the whole narrative out of the water. How? By blowing the motive out of the water. The motive, the key motive of January 6th was not to stop the certification. The key motive of January 6th was to stop the questioning of the election. That was the official proceeding that was underway. That's what Nancy Pelosi and Schumer and the Democrats wanted to stop. And they did stop it. Why? By shouting, insurrection, national emergency. We cannot continue with the questioning of the election. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris must be certified right now. Debbie and I made a New Year's resolution. Let's lose some weight in 2023. Thankfully, PhD weight loss came to the rescue. Uh, You can see the result if you're watching the show. Debbie lost 24 pounds. I've lost 27. We've kept the weight off. We are now both on maintenance. The program is based on science and nutrition. No injections, no pills, no long hours in the gym, no severe calorie restriction. Just good, sound, scientifically proven nutrition. It's so simple. They make it easy by providing 80% of your food at no additional cost. They tell you when and what to eat. And guess what? You can do this without ever being hungry. The founder, Dr. Ashley Lucas, has her PhD in chronic disease and sports nutrition. She's also a registered dietitian. She helps people lose weight and most important, maintain that weight loss for life. So if you're ready to take the step of losing weight like Debbie and I have, call PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition. Here's the number. Write it down, 864-644-1900. You can also find them online at myphdweightloss.com. The number again to call, 864 644 1900. Some really good news out of Argentina. And uh, Debbie's already warning me that I'm about I'm about to talk about Javier Millet, the newly elected. Is it the prime minister or president? No, president, president, el presidente of Argentina. And this guy is like Debbie's idol. <laughs> Um, I mean, jeez, this, um, honey, I, I, I think you're in love with this guy. Yeah. I'm really, I'm probably kind of lucky that he is a little disheveled. He's a little ugly. He's not quite as handsome as I am. So I don't think I have to worry on the w front, really. I think I've got that covered. But this guy is too much. I mean, that's Debbie's phrase, too much, and, and rightly so, because if you see videos of this guy, I mean, he is jumping across the, fr- the the stage shouting liberty forever, and he doesn't hesitate, by the way, to use some salty language. Uh, You might have seen on social media the video where he's talking to this uh, news host, and I mean, the news host is, you know, innocent enough, and she's like, you know, why do you call the left S-H-I-T? And he goes, because they are SHIT. And then he goes on to talk about how malicious they are. They're trying to shut people down, censor them, and so on. So, and he's a libertarian. So it should be said that he's not quite the American style conservative, but he's very Trumpian in many ways. And by that, I mean, he is, uh, he is basically Argentina first. Uh, So we've come up with the phrase, well, it's a very familiar phrase, MAGA, make Argentina great again. Uh, And I think this is really, this is not me projecting onto Millet, this is how Millet sees it. Uh, In fact, Millet himself tweeted, I don't know if I have it here, but really funny this morning. Oh, here it is. He goes, Javier Millet, 2023. Donald Trump, 2024. Jair Bolsonaro, 2026. So what's he getting at? Well, what he's getting at is is a the emergence, uh, and I think here he's on to something really big, of a global right. Now, we've had a global left and a powerful left in many Latin American countries, places like Chile and so on, that have been, has been advancing. Um, uh, the left in Mexico is not that different from the left in Europe, which is not that different from the left in New Zealand, for example. Uh, a global left, or in Israel. But, um... But now we're seeing a global right. Well, who's the global right? Well, Viktor Orban in Hungary, uh, the right-wing government in Poland, of course, Georgia Maloney in Italy, uh, and now uh, we have Malay in Argentina. And let's remember, we're not talking here about one of the small countries, Ecuador, uh, Bolivia. This is a huge defining country of South America. Basically, you know, most of the continents have defining countries. If you look at the Middle East, for example, it's basically Iran, Egypt, uh, and Saudi Arabia. The power center is there. You look at uh, South America, it's Brazil and Argentina, and and they are going to define the tone of the continent. And so that's why this is huge. Now, the left has been dominating Argentina for about 40 years. They had a pretty attractive candidate, um, Sergio Massa, uh, representing the kind of ruling party. And this guy was, thought he was gonna win because, uh, um, he actually outpolled Millay in the, in the first round of voting. But there was a third guy in the race who was a conservative. That guy dropped off. Evidently, his votes went to Millay. There was, incidentally, a supreme, I won't call it a never Trump effort, but it was kind of a never Millay effort. An, An effort to sort of get people, particularly people who are right of center, to, uh vote against Millet. Oh, he's too extreme, you know. And so we got all the all the same stuff about, you know, a vote for Malays, is a vote against democracy. Democracy is on the ballot. I mean, think of the sheer stupidity of what of, the, of that comment. You have two guys running for election for popular vote, democracy is on the ballot. Cuz one guy's pro democracy, the other guy's anti democracy. No, this is this is the actual exercise of democracy. Cuz if you want to look at it your way, democracy lost the people decided that democracy sucks down with democracy we're done with democracy enough of democracy let's have milay instead right is that what the result is no that's not this is the reductio ad absurdum of of sort of progressive reasoning and then of course you just look to look at the scenes of the of the announcement of massa sure enough it's like 2016 uh progressives are like Ugh! you know there's like it's all this expressions of tears and so on and and um And very reminiscent of Trump's win in, in 2016. In fact, the echoes between Argentina and America are really so eerie. Here's Rob Reiner, by the way. Same trope, same mindless rhetoric. This is from a couple of days ago. If you vote for anyone but Joe Biden, you are voting to destroy American democracy. Listen to this. Listen to this meathead. If you vote for anyone other than my guy, it's kind of like, if you vote for anyone other than Comrade Stalin, you are against the people's democracy of the Soviet Union. I mean, this is like apparatchik talk. This is Soviet talk. This is basically, this is how communists see it. With communism is on the ballot. If you vote for anybody else, you're against democracy. Why? Because this is the people's the democracy of East Germany, fellas. And so there's only one pro-democracy party. This is the behavior that's now crept into the, into the United States. Uh, Argentina's new vice president, Victoria... Villa Ruel, Catholic, conservative, pro-life, anti-abortion, uh, pro-family. Again, uh, you can see here that there is in Argentina now a move. Millet himself is kind of an economic conservative. Uh, I don't know if you saw the little video of the guy, like all the agencies he's going to shut down. And there he puts little tabs on the wall. He goes, Ministry for Tourism and Culture, pulls it off. Um, Ministry for Global Sustainability, pulls it off. So he's fighting kind of on the economic front, uh, probably also on the foreign policy front. But it's pretty clear that there's a cultural front as well, represented by the vi- Vice President Victoria Villarruel. So where, where are we now? Well, this is a very hopeful development. I don't know what it says about 2024 in the United States. But I think what it does say is that globally, there are people waking up to the fact that we are moving really towards police states all over the world, repression of liberty, uh, the whole idea that you have to shut people up, know, uh, in, in the name of equity or in the name of tolerance. And people are like, actually, you're the real intolerance. <music> Debbie, I'm on a really good health journey, but we still struggle to eat enough fruits, veggies and fiber. And guess what? That's a requirement. So lucky for us, we discovered a balance of nature and there's no better way to get all your fruits and veggies plus fiber done with Balance of Nature. This is Balance of Nature's fruits and veggies in a capsule, so easy to take, made from fresh whole produce. The produce is powdered after an advanced vacuum-cold process, which stabilizes the maximum nutrient content. And this is Balance of Nature's Fiber and Spice, a proprietary blend of fiber and 12 spices for overall and digestive health. Join Debbie and me, start your journey to better health right now. Call 800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com. You get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. Again, it's balanceofnature.com or call 800-246-8751. Get 35% off your first preferred order by using discount code AMERICA. If you've been listening to Donald Trump in the last uh, several days, a new theme is creeping into his posts and his rhetoric and his rallies. And I want to quote his latest statement. His latest statement is a little incendiary and it has a lot of people, you know, melting down, as they say. But let's analyze what Trump is saying and, and, and what's behind it. What's he really getting at? The, the statement itself is a little apocalyptic. I'm going to read it. 2024 is our final battle. So there you have, like, the Armageddon rhetoric. With you at my side, we will demolish the deep state. We will expel the warmongers from our government. We will drive out the globalists. We will cast out the communists, Marxists, and fascists. We will throw off the sick political class that hates our country. We will rout the fake news media. We will evict Joe Biden from the White House. And we will finish the job once and for all. Pretty... Strong words. But with as with Trump, you always have to sort of decode. You have to read between the lines. You've got to see what is the guy getting at. Now, let's start with the end. We will finish the job once and for all. I think that Trump is admitting here that he didn't do enough in the first term. I think he's actually admitting that he underestimated the depth of corruption. He underestimated the power of the police state. He underestimated how even in his own Justice Department, there would be forces arrayed and mobilized against him. He didn't know it then. He does know it now. He probably didn't even know that, like, the CDC is going to put out ideologically motivated lies. Oh, if you take the vaccine, you can't get COVID. Oh, if you take the vaccine, you can't give somebody COVID. This is this is Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, flatly lying. And we know lying because there's internal communications that she knew better. But nevertheless, she goes with the propaganda. She goes kind of full gerbils on us and all the media parrots it. You know, there you have, like, Don Lemon, you know, we need a vaccine against B.S., so actually it's Don Lemon who's promoting the BS. The people criticizing the vaccine are onto something. So the point is they're censoring in favor of lies and they're shutting down truth. So anyway, Trump, I think is, is saying in the second term, I now have these guys number. You're going to basically see a different Trump. And, and, and this is what's scaring the left. Cause really what Trump is saying is no more Mr. Nice Guy. He's going to up the ante. Now, For some time, I have been talking on this podcast about a a conundrum among conservatives and Republicans, which is this. If you want to be, and we've tried to be for 25 years, the party of the nice guys, the party of live and let live, the party of turn the other cheek, the party of coexistence, the party of you live your lifestyle, I'll live my lifestyle. But here's the problem. The left is not content with that. They don't want that. They don't want to leave you alone. They want to indoctrinate your kid in school. Uh, they want to uh, inflict their cultural agenda on you, make you bend your knee, so to speak. And if you don't, they're going to make sure that you're deplatformed, you're fired, you're excommunicated, you're ostracized. So the dilemma is, if they're using the power of the police state against you, what do you do? you just go, well, I'm a man of principle, you can try it on me, but if I come to power, I won't try it on you, I'm going to leave you alone? No. The simple truth of it is, at the end, the best way to immobilize a police state is to do to them what they're doing to you. How else? There's a bully in the playground, he picks on all the little kids, punches them in the face, kicks them in the shins. He's going to keep doing it, and as long as the kids are like, live and let live, we're not going to respond in kind, you're in charge of the playground. No. At some point, the kids go, all right, well, let's let eight of us get together. Now, we're not we're not individually able to stand up to the bully, but collectively, we actually can. Let's ambush the guy in a dark alley. Let's punch him in the nose. Let's kick him in the shins. And then guess what? The playground suddenly becomes a really peaceful place. Why? Because all the stuff that he's doing to them, they're going to do to him. That is, I think, the real... This is the meaning of what Trump is saying here. Trump is basically saying, listen, two can play at this game. Yeah, you want to stack the court? We can pack the court too. You want to use the weapons of government against your opponents? Guess what? You're not going to be in power forever. It's going to be our turn sometime. And then we're going to teach you the kind of lesson you're never going to forget. I think that this this is mutually assured destruction, to be sure. MAD, as we called it in the Cold War... But it is the necessary form of deterrence. Look, it worked against the Soviet Union, didn't it? Why? Because essentially, there was a credible threat. You want to unleash your nuclear weapons? Guess what? We've got a lot of nuclear warheads of our own. And so it's going to be goodbye, Moscow, good guy, Leningrad, goodbye to the entire Soviet empire if you try. And so the way to immobilize the police state is to take some of these guys, hold them accountable for their crimes, turn, if you will, uh, the tactics that they've been using us against them, and Donald Trump says he intends to do exactly that. Michael Ende just keeps on introducing great deals. He's featuring the new MyPillow, Pillow, My Towels. You can save fifty percent off the six-piece towel set. Regular price fifty nine ninety six, but now for a limited time, just twenty nine ninety eight with promo code Dinesh Debbie And I have Mike's My Towels all over the house. We love them for ourselves, but we also like to give them away as Christmas presents. Great idea. Think about it. My Towels six-piece set includes two bath towels, two hand towels two washcloths, the towels are really amazing. The long staple length of the Sherpa cotton fibers makes them very soft. Because of the long fibers, they can wrap around each other more easily, creating a smoother and softer fabric. It's soft to the touch. Without the lotiony feel, it's also super absorbent. So take advantage of the 50% off on the six-piece towel set. Call 800-876-0227. The number again, 800-876-0227. Or go to MyPillow.com. Make sure you use the promo code. It's D-I-N-E-S-H Dinesh. Guys, I'm really uh, happy to welcome to the podcast, Brian Kilmeade. Doesn't really need an introduction. Um, television anchor for Fox News Channel, co-host of the morning show, Fox and Friends. He also does the daily national radio show, The Brian Kilmeade Show. And he has a new book, Teddy and Booker T. How Two American Icons Blazed a Path for Racial Equality. His website, by the way, briankilmeade.com. Uh, uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Um, uh, thanks for joining me. New book out. Brian, you've been kind of, over the last several years, zooming into, I don't know if it's fair to call it popular history, but typically what you do is you'll pick an episode out of the life of George Washington or Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, Lincoln. Uh, kind of focus on that and use it to illuminate not only that particular time, but also something relevant to our own time. So maybe I'll start by asking you just about this technique of approaching history in this way. What are you trying to accomplish?
2: Well, uh, again, Zanesh, thanks for having me on. What I was trying to do was this. And Bill O'Reilly gave me the idea, just watching him do stuff that was done already. I'm thinking to myself, Lincoln's assassination, it'll sell because Bill O'Reilly's popular, but I'm, I'm shocked it's the same subject. And I picked up the book and I read it. And I go, wow, this moves. Not only did I find out new information, it moves. And I went up to Bill and I said, Bill, I got this one story I've been working on for 20 years. It actually happened in really since 1989. And it happened in our neighborhood on Long Island. He said so what it is. And I told him about the spies and he asked for details. And I actually gave him yellow pen. And I'm thinking, Bill's not going to be able to read my handwriting. He's going to just say, you know. He came back and he's like, write something up. And I wrote five to 10 pages and he said, I like it. You should do it. I go, so you're not going to be upset if I do history? Absolutely not. So I got permission to do it. And I mainly wanted to do it to do a movie. I thought it would be great to see a spy. I watched National Treasure. And I saw what Nicolas Cage was doing. And I go, this is a real story and it's better. And they said, even if you sell one copy, you could do a movie off that. You do your own. I should want went to you, Dinesh. You do your movies. But um so they the book ended up doing really well. And I didn't try to do the George Washington biography. I can't bring something new to George Washington. But what if I told you about a bartender? What if I told you about a farmer? What if I told you about a, a printer who was really a journalist? What if I told you a grocery store owner and then a, a socialite who tried to penetrate the social circles? Man, you could relate to that as an American. And I thought we could tell an American story. I did not know we'd be in a war on history. I, not for the life of me that I think I'd be sitting there defending our past from within our country. And then I watched your movies too. And that also spurred me to say, let's start telling the true story. And what I get very worried about is people say, well, this guy on Fox is painting it too nice and too red, white, and blue. So I built it around the quotes. And I go, here's the quotes. Here's what you're saying. I'll build it around it, make the narrative. But don't tell me it's what I think Booker T. Washington said, Frederick Douglass said, Thomas Jefferson said. This is what they said. This is what William Eaton said. So I went to Thomas Jefferson, Triple E Pirates, the first war on terror. Anytime someone went right, right with perspective, about bin Laden and the Islamic extremism. They'd always go back to Jefferson dealt with it first. So I said, let me explore that. War of 1812, I was fascinated uh, because George W. Bush was kind enough to tour me through the White House. And he pointed up to the burn marks over the bowling alley. Have you seen that? That's where the Washington, the White House burned to the ground. And I said, why do you think they left it there? And he said, maybe it's to remind us how fragile democracy is and how close we came to total annihilation as a country. Wow. That's pretty cool. And then I thought, what happens that nobody talks about? In a, outside Texas, nobody talks about Texas history. I got one day. And so I did Sam after the Alamo. And that was the Alamo. Sam used to the Alamo Avengers. Why don't I tell you about San Jacinto and then how that became a state but first became a country? But I do it in a way that I don't care if, um, if Harvard doesn't take the book as their textbook. It's okay with me. I'm writing for the American people, every day person, because that's what I am. Because if it's too, you know, if it's too dense and too much in retro, I don't I don't need book, to put a book report on this. You know, I want people to know the quick, accurate story. If you want to learn more, go. Which brought me to Frederick Douglass and L. Abraham Lincoln. I Douglass's book was Book of the Year, David Blight. And then Abraham Lincoln is the most written about president. By what if I talked about how they uh, worked together parallel, what they overcame to be successful? Again, America, the most unlikely heroes imaginable, and they've managed to come together to help move us forward. And then I brought me to the next period, which was very the the compromise of 1877, and how de- how detrimental it was to our development, and who brought us through that. And I go, okay. Every time I read Booker T. Washington, I keep on seeing Teddy Roosevelt's name pop up. So I went to Tweed Roosevelt, who's running Long Island University Roosevelt School, and I said. Do I have it here? Do I have something here? He said, you absolutely do. But just don't think that Teddy Roosevelt walks on water in race relations. He says some things that'll, you know, it'll show his blind spots. But he loved Booker T. Washington. The mutual respect is real. He supported me through it. He's on the special, our special on Fox Nation. So that's what I wanted to do. Booker T. and Teddy wrote so much. What if I talked you about how they, which was parallel came together, made America better.
1: We'll be right back with Brian Kilmeade. (music) Christmas is coming up. I can't think of any gift that's better than feeling good again. It's better than getting a new car. Here's an idea. Relief Factor. It's the gift that helps people relieve pain and feel good once again. Relief Factor is a daily supplement. It helps your body fight back against pain. It's 100% drug-free. Relief Factor was developed by doctors searching for a better alternative for pain. Relief Factor uses a unique formula of natural ingredients like turmeric and omega-3s to help reduce or eliminate the everyday aches and pains you are experiencing, whether it's neck, back, joint, or muscle pain. Relief Factor can help you feel better Unlike pills that simply mask your pain for a short time Relief Factor helps support your body's natural response to inflammation So you feel better all day, every day See how Relief Factor can help you with their 3-week quick start kit It's only nineteen ninety-five, and it comes with Relief Factor's feel better, or your money-back guarantee. So what do you have to lose? Give it a try. Visit relieffactor.com or call 800-4-RELIEF. Again, the number, 800 relief or go to relieffactor.com. When you feel the difference, you know it works. I'm back with Brian Kilmeade, the book we're talking about, Teddy and Booker T, How Two American Icons Blazed a Path for Racial Equality. Brian, you know, if I was speaking on a campus uh, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, I would assume that the students knew who Teddy Roosevelt was, they would know who Booker T. Washington was, they probably heard of W.E.B. Du Bois, they would have some background knowledge of the topic, and I would be playing off of that. Do you find yourself in a situation today where because of the sort of decline of emphasis on history and concrete knowledge, I mean, leave aside the full story, a lot of young people perhaps don't know the story at all that when you when you come up with a book teddy and booker t i mean do people know right away who teddy is do they know who booker t is can they fill in any blanks at all or do you have to start out as if you are sort of a, a fourth grade teacher and go well there was this guy named booker <laughs> it, it, t washington and he was born in slavery and so on how do you handle it both
2: i mean number one very intelligent people just weren't at that into social studies or history And they're busy, whether they're truck drivers and have an (laughs) interest, but don't have the knowledge. But everybody knows Teddy Roosevelt. Booker T. Washington's name is known, but not what he did. So that was my my focus is to find who they are, the odds they overcame, and how they came together. And just because Teddy Roosevelt was rich doesn't mean his life was easy. And I wanted to bring that up right away.
1: Let's talk about the relationship between the two. Teddy Roosevelt is elected, uh, I believe, 1901. Um, Booker T. Washington, born a slave, becomes the most sort of powerful figure in, uh, in the American South. The most important, uh, African American, a black American. And, uh, and the South, of course, is overwhelmingly democratic. It was before the Civil War. It remained after the Civil War. And so you've got a powerful, uh, democratic establishment that is very hostile to Booker T. Washington. So lay the scene. Uh, for the famous uh, dinner uh, between Teddy Roosevelt and Booker T. I
2: found it fascinating that Teddy Roosevelt read Up From Slavery. That's the only thing I had in common with him. And that's what I read. That's what got me excited about this book. And I said, this is unbelievable. I can't believe this uh, book. And I wanted to read more. and That led me the other way. Um, so they met in 1901. I think it was April. And they just agreed to Edith read it to his wife, Teddy Roosevelt's wife. They met in Manhattan. And he said, let's work together. You know, I need to know more about the South. Mom is, and mom is from the South. It's the two brothers, my uncle, who fought for the Confederacy. But if I'm going to be a political figure, I need to be able to win over the black vote. You understand what you've done in Tuskegee. And then he, we get a letter, uh, Dinesh, and you probably read it, where he writes, to, and they promised to go to Tuskegee, he was going to see it as vice president. And he writes a letter apologizing. But McKinley is assassinated. I'm now president. I'm not going to be able to come see you. As if Booker T needed an explanation. Uh, But then they would set up the meeting and they would eventually meet at the White House. And just like he would say, uh, a letter arrived at his hotel says, the president would love for you to meet him tonight for dinner. And he said, there was a part of him that said, maybe you shouldn't do it. But how do you turn down the president? He shows up. America at that time, as you know, was not necessarily ready for a black man to eat with the president's white family. And that became some of the most horrendous headlines you could possibly imagine coming and written in American newspapers in certain sections uh, in the South. And it hurt both their causes. So they kind of had to pick their spots when to go public with their relationship. But it didn't really hinder their relationship, in my view. They just had to handle it differently because they knew the country they were in, not the one uh, they wanted to be in, in terms of race relations.
1: I mean, we have to be candid and admit that this was a time when, and this was, again, politically coming from the Democratic side, you would have Democratic congressmen and senators not hesitate to use the N-word. Well, uh, I remember, I think it was Senator Vardaman uh, who basically said something like, oh, my gosh, now that the president is sitting down with the black guy, we're going to have to kill a thousand N- uh, in other words, just to put them in their place, because they're going to be so out of control after this uh, symb- the, after the symbolic value of this gets out there. So this was uh, this was fraught. Uh, not just by the way, with rhetorical, uh, excess, but I mean, there was, there were lynchings going on throughout the South. There was violence. There was the, this was the era of the Ku Klux Klan, which had a revival, of course, a little bit later under, um, uh, under, uh, Woodrow Wilson. So this was a dangerous atmosphere, I guess I'm saying, in which these two men got together.
2: And it was, uh, Dinesh, by the way, did we just whitewash American history or did we deal with it directly? Do we say the segregation was a problem? No. Do we say that Ku Klux Klan didn't exist? Do Did we say that that uh, that it uh, was easy for blacks in the South? No. What I think is the biggest joke is a lot of people talk about you and they might talk about me and say, well, whitewashing history. Absolutely not. Tell the true story and the heroic figures that rose up to push us more towards a perfect union. But everything you just said is 100% correct. And the number two is y- you had to worry not about their relationship or each other but how it helps their cause. For Teddy Roosevelt, I got to be the president that's going to make the country better. For Booker T. Washington, it's all about Tuskegee. If I do something that makes Tuskegee the enemy of the South or the people of Alabama, anything but an asset, I've lost. It's not about Booker T.'s fame. It's not about his his location as it relates to the most powerful people. It's about what helps the most amount of African-Americans in the South, and that was Tuskegee. And he damaged that, even though he did nothing wrong, but he damaged that in some people's eyes. And that's why he had to be more careful. He would help people out who were unjustly being prosecuted by paying their lawyer fees, harboring them. But he had to keep a lower profile. When W.E.B., Du Bois and company would say, stand up, take a stand. But back then, he said, what's going to help Tuskegee? What's going to help another generation of Americans in the country I'm in, at the place we're in, in the South? And if I make a public stand and Tuskegee
1: pays the price, who have I really helped? I'll be right back with Brian Kilmeade. I'm back with Brian Kilmeade. We're talking about his new book, Teddy and Booker T, How Two American Icons Blazed a Path for Racial Equality. Uh, Brian, I want to offer a brief analysis and have you respond to it. Um, It seems to me that after slavery— Blacks obviously were starting life from the bottom, right? They were starting out without skills. They had to reunify families that had been broken up under slavery and so on. No one understood this better than Booker T. Washington, who was a man of the South. Unlike Du Bois, who was essentially the first black PhD at Harvard, Du Bois was a northerner. And Du Bois picked up a phrase from Frederick Douglass, which uh, which was "agitate, agitate, agitate," and this was basically the Du Bois formula: that the way blacks get ahead is they agitate, they demand their rights. And I take Booker T. Washington to be saying something uh, very subtle, and that is that: listen, you're right; we actually do need all these rights, but what is the point of having rights? If you don't have the skills to take advantage of those rights, like another way to put it is, okay, you're now going to allow me to, to take part in the Olympic race, but I haven't learned how to run. Well, I haven't le- learned how to play this particular sport. So the rights need to be complemented by the development of skills to take advantage of the rights. And, and that was Booker T's lifelong focus. We got to start at the beginning. Let's start by teaching you to brush your teeth. Next, we're going to teach you the elementary sanitation. Then I'm going to teach you the alphabet. Then I'm going to teach you how to advance. But Booker T's point was, you don't start with Shakespeare. You start by building the building blocks of education, and then that's how you get there. Is, would you agree with this, uh, a summary of, and the reason I think it's relevant is because it seems to me that today the Booker T. Washington path is the immigrant road to success. In other words, immigrants are coming to the United States, very often immigrants of color, people like me, and we're following the Booker T. Washington formula of starting with nothing, moving up, improving our condition. So that even though Du Bois was right in his own time, Booker T. Washington's advice is of pressing importance today.
2: Wow, do I love that analogy. And I'm going to steal it for future interviews. If you don't mind, Dinesh, I'll put you in the bibliography. It is I yours. Do, and what he's trying to say is, and this is what Ron DeSantis tried to say, but he didn't correct himself. So when, the, when slaves were freed, white people didn't know how to do anything. They had no skills. They had no trade. And he, some people actually felt bad for him and stuck around with the families and got offers. Because they had skills. They could do things, but they didn't have the education that was illegal to do that. So what Booker T. Washington said, that I I thought this was interesting. It it got some of the black families angry. They wanted students, their kids to be students. He said, yeah, but no kid goes to Tuskegee and doesn't learn a trade. Because you have this, people that are not going to want to hire you. So you have to be indispensable. So I wish that on me right now. I wish I was forced to take mechanics or carpentry. And how many times I'm paying people to do basic plumbing? And agriculture and and whatever skill, but you could not lead without it. I went to Tuskegee. I recommend everyone do it. You could basically eat off the floor in all these classrooms. One professor is more impressive than the next. The pride they have in the academics as well as the trade still exists today, as well as their history. But I think you're 100% right. W.E.B. Du Bois, great intellect. But what did he actually do as a legacy? He would study. He would write. But he would agitate. But all Booker T. Washington was take 1,200 graduates a year and put them into society with a sense of purpose, a sense of pride, of self-esteem, and uh, proud to be an American. I'm not talking all of them, but most of them. And that's why when you read Teddy Roosevelt's speech about coming down there and giving his commencement, I think the first beginning is all ad lift, It's not on topic. It's written down because he was moved by what he saw and the possibilities in which this school, uh, school was doing. So I think when DeSantis came out and said when people came out of slavery, they, uh, they had a skill, he wasn't saying slavery was good. Nobody's saying slavery was good. He's just saying that the, the men and women who worked around the house all left with some type of trade and white people had zero because someone else is doing it for them. That, that was his point. And I just think, I just love the practicality of his approach. So, Dinesh, if, if you don't like me because of my color, my skin, but the guy over there does, doesn't have a problem with me. I don't hate you. I will not give you the benefit of you hating me, me hating you. That's that's I don't, I don't resent you either. I'm going to deal with them. And hopefully you'll see the way I interacted and you'll change your opinion because it's not your fault. You had generations of people telling you that one skin color made somebody better than the other. And that's what I saw in Booker T. Washington. I'm going to make it work. I'm going to make it better. I'm not going to spend time in resentment and anger.
1: I mean, I remember at the heat of that Booker T. washington du Bois debate, uh, Booker T. Washington said, look, you know, we're not going to be able to get ahead. Look at the crime rate in the black community. Look at the broken families. And then Du Bois was like, who do you think broke up those families? It was slavery. Why do you think we have a big crime rate? It's because, you know, we don't have jobs. And Booker T. Washington was like, I agree. But nevertheless... Long term, how are we going to flourish as a community yeah. by creating a band of criminals? Uh, how are we going to flourish as a community if we don't have intact families where you basically are able to raise children and so on? So I think that in a, this is a very interesting debate because both sides kind of had a point, And it may yes. be that Booker T. Washington's point was more important in 1923, but... That Du Bois, I'm sorry, but that, that Du Bois's point was more important in 1923, but Booker T. Washington's point is far more important in, in 2023. Uh, Brian, great stuff. I'm excited to read this book. I just got thank it. You. And your website, briankilmead.com, the book, Teddy and Booker T, How Do American Icons Blaze a Path for Racial Equality? Thanks for joining me.
2: Yeah, Janesh, thank you. If anyone wants it signed, it goes to my local bookstore. <laughs> I'll go in there, do you a little, I'll say what you want, and they'll mail it out. But thanks, Dinesh. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com.